1: Hey there, everybody, this is Sarah, and thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the No Labels, No Limits podcast, a podcast all about shedding limiting labels, limiting labels and beliefs. Um, And today that's actually even more appropriate because we're going to talk about shedding more than just labels and beliefs um, so that we can be our authentic selves. And um, I'm... Interested to see if folks can actually hear the wisdom in what we're going to learn from Dr. Lynn Sally. Now, Lynn Sally, or Dr. Lucky Lynn Sally, is an author, a performer, and a scholar. Or as she likes to say, she's a professor by day and a stripper by night. Um, performance studies scholar is her professional daytime job, but she's also an acclaimed burlesque artist. And she offers an inside look at the history, culture, and philosophy of New York's neo-burlesque scene in her recent book, Neo-Burlesque Striptease as Transformation. And that's actually part of the, the pieces I want to pull apart with her about how that is um, a transformation path. But in her book, she really talks about or says it's a constant dialogue with the classic burlesque of the 19th and 20th centuries, with what is today and i love this quote by her which she says be yourself unapologetically and boldly so with that brief introduction let's welcome today's guest dr lynn sally hi lynn how are you i'm great how are you today sarah i'm well i wanted to start i asked all of our guests this opening question so i don't want to let you off the hook i want to ask you as well and that is is there something that you do every day or on a really regular basis that helps you stay true to who you are and your goals and visions?
2: Yeah, so every day when I wake up in the morning, I actually um, meditate. Uh, And that's a moment for me to just um, think about my coming day, also just to ground myself in my breath. Um, And so it's just a moment for me to transition into the into the day and so that's been a really um great daily practice for me to center myself and sort of um prepare
1: for the day ahead. Have you always done that?
2: No, um that's recent. Uh I uh, about 4 years ago I started meditating. So, um uh, I've been doing it now every day for a good year or two.
1: Awesome. Um, I'm guessing that you're having the effects that you want from it. Um, Okay, so let's just dive right into the topic of burlesque and stripper and professor. So I'm I'm going back a few years, I'm sitting in class, I'm thinking about my accounting professor, and I'm going, huh, what if I'd known she also did burlesque at night? So what kind of roadblocks did you have to overcome to maintain both, I mean, performance art and burlesque, you are all out there and professors have a expectation upon them that I think might have prevented or presented some challenges to you initially. Is that correct?
2: Absolutely. Um, So much so that this book is a coming out for me. So I have for decades, Hidden what I've done um, precisely because what you're saying, there's certain expectations um, around how professors are supposed to behave. Um, And in general, in higher ed and academia, there's this disconnect between the body and the intellect. You know, there's this assumption um, that we can't inhabit both simultaneously. And so, one of the things I did in this book was I finally, you know, when I say I am a stripper, it's how I opened the book. And I'm being a little tongue in cheek, you know it's not um, a, a commercial strip club. I've never been a um, commercial stripper like that. I am as you introduced the burlesque artist um, though I'm not interested in sort of valorizing one um, over the other, and so that's why I, I say this but for me this was this was hard I, I I had two separate websites, I had two separate identities um and I hoped. And prayed every time I went into a classroom that someone wouldn't Google me and find an article of some reporter who insisted on using my real name with my um, with my stage name. Uh, and so it's been it's been a hard it's been a hard journey. Um, but it took me no longer having a full time appointment in academia to finally um, come out in this way uh, because I don't think that this would fly, even though this is a very legitimate book. Um, well-researched, published by um, an exceptional university press, there's still pushback. And so it took me separating those from that world to um, write about my
1: true self. So let's, I I appreciate that you um, did a distinction between not to valorize using your language, but let's describe or put a definition between those so that people can understand what you're speaking about more specifically.
2: Sure, of course. So burlesque is a theatrical form um, that is usually um, connected to either a a nightclub or a theater or something like that. It's a theatrical event. Um, There's a host, there's a variety of performers, um, the majority, oftentimes there's a variety show. So there might be a singer or a magician or an acrobat um, uh, who may or may not use strip keys as a performance tool. Um, but a lot of performers do use strip keys. So um on the surface, if you look at the removal of an item of clothing, um, technically speaking, what's happening in a burlesque show, the performer ends on stage and pasties in a G string. Um, which might be similar to if you were to go to um, what we think of as a commercial strip club. Um, The difference is, again, I'm not saying one's better than the other, Um, absolutely. Um, In fact, I'm saying they have more in common than we usually care to admit. Um, But the burlesque performer, it's a theatrical event, and most performers are telling a story on stage. So they come out as a character, Um, or uh, um, making a reference to something in popular culture, maybe a movie that just came out or maybe um, a meme that they think is funny. And through that um, short vignette, they're able to tell a story of transformation. And so, you know, you you don't know what's gonna happen on stage, um, but um, the performer at the end of a burlesque act has told a story uh and has transformed and so that's to me um you know the the difference uh in a strip club it's it's pretty much a a monetary exchange um and then in uh burlesque i think of it as more like a theatrical um a theatrical
1: event so burlesque goes way back right so i mean i think that was my reference to it. And it was funny when I first came across your information, I'm going burlesque. are we still doing burlesque? Right. Because I'm, I always think of it back in the early or yeah, the early 1900s mid not that I was there, but like just on the shows or things I've seen that have been recorded from that, which is that really theatrical kind of dramatic um, versus my assumptions about a strip club right? Or those kinds of things. So what might be, you're still active, right? Okay. So you talk about having a short vignette. What are some of the vignettes or memes that you have told the story around maybe in the last couple of years?
2: Absolutely. Um, So burlesque as we know it in the United States emerged in in 1868 when Lydia Thompson and the British Blondes Came from the UK and brought their unique version of a of, of theater to New York City um, uh, to, to the New York City theater um, um, world. And what they did was revolutionary at the time because all of the women played the, the male parts. So this allowed them to dress up in men's clothes, which allowed them to expose their ankles. And at the time it's 1868, it's Victorian, it's the era. And that was very, very shocking. Not only that, but they poked fun at everything. They poked fun at high culture. They poked fun at popular culture. Um, and so all of that was really, really shocking at the time. Um, so today in contemporary, what we oftentimes refer to as neo-burlesque, we're doing a very similar thing, but using striptease. So making allusions or referencing things that are happening in popular culture. So I have one act. Um, to answer your question, uh, where I, um, I come out, uh, as a pony. So I literally have, I am, I'm, I'm inside a horse. I have cut horse in half and have horse on both sides of me. So I come out, I'm riding my pony, and then I, um, miraculously turn into a carousel horse. Um, and there's a magic trick involved, which I will not divulge. Um, uh, <laughs> but I basically pole appears, um, and I turn into a carousel horse. Carousel horses, the metaphor is, they're kind of—they're pretty, um, they serve a purpose, they're eye candy, but they're pretty stuck, and they're there to serve you and your pleasure. Um, and then Chariots of Fire comes on, the song um, from Chariots of Fire, the famous one, and I break away from the pole and release myself um, and just start, you know, get, getting into getting into riding that pony a little bit more (laughs) Um, and then i release my hair all the way down and zip um my corset turn around to the audience and run slow motion to them and i have become lady godiva on a horse running to the audience and then (laughs) i reach down in between my legs pull up a phallic object and it's a unicorn horn and i take the unicorn place it on my head and i am now a unicorn so that act is obviously all about these um key uh images uh in history right i'm i come out i I transform into lady into a carousel horse into Lady Gaga and then I become a unicorn, right? So it's all of that happens in like three or four minutes, um, and so that's just an example of some of the fun things that we can do on stage in a really short amount of time and just telling a story through physicality, music, costumes, and super extreme facial expressions.
1: I was watching you even just telling that, and I'm watching your mouth and your shape, I'm going, oh, she is a performer. So how did you even get into burlesque? If I met you on a street, I'd say, she looks like a, I don't know, regular, regular Jane, right? So how did you get into burlesque?
2: Sure, well, I was actually studying burlesque in graduate school. More specifically, I was studying american popular entertainment in the two wars the um civil war and world war one so burlesque was one of the things that i was studying same time as i was doing that um you know i'm in new york city uh late 90s early 2000s uh one of my um best friends and i this is what we kind of did at night on the weekends we would get dressed up and put on wigs and eyelashes and costumes and dance for each other in the living room so um, I was preparing for my burlesque career before I even knew that thing existed. Uh, and then one of my best friends joined the Pontani sisters, and I started getting involved with them. At first, I was a cigarette girl, and then um, they asked me to do an act. And so it just kind of grew from there. So it really happened sort of organically. I didn't go out and seek, you know, um, burlesque uh, as an outlet. Uh, to be honest, the the scene was really emerging at that time that I started getting involved in the late nineties. You know, it had been around um, and it never really disappeared from the fifties and sixties conversation, but that's how, but that's how I started in New York, just as this like organic thing as an extension of of what I was already doing. Um, And I also started identifying as a female drag queen when I was in college. Um, and so that was another thing that it really tapped into something that had preexisted in me before.
1: That being able to switch and be a drag queen, or be, like being more theatrical.
2: Exactly. I mean, drag to me is about imagining a persona, and then you know going to extreme measures with hair and makeup, costuming, and a flamboyant personality to pull it off. Um, so in college, they would tell me, oh, you can't be a drag queen because you're a woman. Um, and so, but I just kept, you know, doing my thing. There's something um really liberating uh in that um in that ability to just, you know, to bring something into being whatever you can imagine in in, in your mind. And so I, I think it's really um exciting. It's just an exciting way to approach art and to approach life.
1: So this was going on in parallel with your finishing your degree and becoming a professor?
2: Yes. Interesting. Yeah, so I I started, I have a very distinct um, memory of uh, being in graduate school and I was a TA. Um, I won't tell you for who, uh, because I don't want to get in trouble, but I had this distinct memory of being in his office and grading papers or doing whatever I was doing at the time, and then having a gig and having to get what we call get into drag. Um, And so I just put on all my makeup and I remember very distinctly like wiping the glitter off of his desk into a garbage can. And we all know that glitter, it doesn't go away. And I I bet you if I went back to that office today, I would find some glitter in the cracks of the desk. so yeah, those things were happening simultaneously. And it like, was a fun way, little extra money, graduate students. And to also, you know, I'm a, I'm a performance scholar. So um, they, they connected in, in more ways than one. And a lot of the things I was studying in graduate school, I was able to, you know, think about um, and help, um, you know, deepen my stage performance
1: too. So there are a lot of stigma and consequences that come along with being a burlesker. I'm I'm assuming, but I'm I I just imagine there are. So um, can you share what some of those are? And I know this is early, also where you've merged your two lives to become public. What you're anticipating for yourself?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are absolutely stigmas, and it's, you know, like I said at the beginning, it's one of the reasons why I just kind of kept, kept the world um, separate. Um, and there is a stigma that somebody who uses their body to tell a story or make money is somehow not professional, not legitimate, um, uh, not intelligent, and, and none of those things are true. I had a reporter one time that did a story about a weekend intensive called Camp Camp at my house. Um, and it was a weekend. I thought it was funny. It was like campy, campy, camp camp. Um, and I had a reporter that was covering it, and they came and they did a wonderful job on the article, submitted it to their editor, and the editor came back and said, I can't find any proof that this person teaches at NYU. So I send them. I think I sent them a link to the NYU course description. Well, that doesn't prove anything. So I sent them a copy of my syllabus and they still would not accept it. So I had to send them a photo of my pay stub to prove that I taught this class. And it was so... Annoying, first of all, and and shocking, but also not shocking because I realized what that person is thinking the whole time is what I just described—that stigma that somebody who uses their body to tell a story or make money is somehow not intelligent or not a professional. Um, I have countless examples of this of people who've gotten fired um, uh, from various types of positions uh, because they're burlesque performers, and what always Pops into my brain is what do they think is going on in these at these shows, if you can just imagine a grown up variety show with people, you know, almost like an open mic getting up there, doing their thing, really going for it, having a fun time in ridiculous costume and ridiculous amount of makeup. Uh, and telling a little story on stage, that's what burlesque is. And so I always think, God, I know for sure that all of those people, anyone that's ever fired someone or you know, children taken away from, from their mothers because they, they did burlesque, I don't think any of those people have ever been to a show because it is so much more campy and fun um, you know, I wouldn't call it PG13, but you know, it's adult, it's adult humor. Um, but it's so much more benign than what people I think are expecting or are thinking precisely because of that stigma as you described it.
1: And I'm actually imagining that it is probably more tame than some of the stand-up mic stuff that goes on, um, just because it does not sound like from your description that the purpose of it is to ostracize or shame or make people wrong, but rather to make light of and make fun of and help transform.
2: Absolutely, I mean, that's what it is. That's what burlesque is. It's, it's poking fun, it's parody. Um, and that fun is also, that poking fun is also about funness, about having fun. So the performers are having fun on stage, people in the audience are having fun um, and there's a lightheartedness to it. Uh, you can see way more explicit things in music videos than you would ever see at, at, at a burlesque show. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, it's it's really interesting. It's it's interesting to me um, why this, why this, all this baggage has been put on this one art form and I'm not sure why, though I think for the neo scene, the neo burlesque scene, the contemporary art scene, it has something to do with the, with the performers, and I'm gonna use the word women, um, though not all burlesque performers are women, I'm gonna use that for the moment. But I think it has something to do with the women who who are getting on stage and bearing their soul and their ideas and their bodies. And oftentimes they may not conform to mainstream beauty ideals. Um, it might be an aging body, it might be um, a skinny body, it might be a fat body. And I think that, that actually, is where people's, um, discomfort comes from, you know, it's like, it's uh, that celebration of anybody on stage is hard for people to swallow when we're constantly being told, we're constantly being told through social media, um, and through the media in general, um, to cover up if you look a certain way.
1: Yeah. Like there is one way to be. Exactly. And that's why when I read about you, I thought whoo, and I think I told you this before when we were figuring out all the tech glitches that I had um, that I just think how courageous it is right to be able to do that, because there is the metaphorical and the literal version of being. Fair, right, you know, and people talk about being authentic. I just think it takes something to be comfortable with yourself And I'm wondering if you have lessons about how that has helped you or others you've known kind of transform themselves, their opinions of themselves, or their self expression, um, especially as a professor who studies this and the whole cultural aspect of it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and there's a lot of talk, um, and I can provide lots of examples of people who get into burlesque, they might not want to be. A professional performer, um, but they want to take classes. Um, they want to come up with an act. They want to express themselves um, in a way that sort of pushes against um, perhaps decorum or expectations. And they, you know, again, they might not have any any um, plans to ever c- continue with it beyond that one set of classes are coming up with that one act. Because I think um, I think in this society, women are um, definitely um, put into boxes and to be able to break free out of that box is really, really liberating. Um, and to see uh, women in my classes transform from when they walk in until they, until they get on stage um it's really um it's really a beautiful thing to to witness and so there is a lot of um uh empowerment behind a lot of burlesque um and of course you know that doesn't uh um there's some who who argue that burlesque is a performing art and it's not therapy um but i personally think it's okay it's a little bit of both
1: <laughs> well if you're stretching yourself I tell you, if I was in your class, it would be a huge stretch for me, not because I think burlesque is wrong, but because I would think that I wouldn't have what it takes to be successful. Right. It's like, uh, I don't think I could do that. So the purpose of the class for me would be just to be uncomfortable and get through. Oh, and I'd want an A, by the way, I don't no, I'm sorry, I'm, anything less than an A, especially if I'm uncomfortable, is not going to do. Um, but so I, I can see it being an empowerment Piece, even if it is within the confines of the class because you're there with other people right it's not just taking place in your head
2: yeah absolutely and there you know that can be scary um sharing yourself in that way but I do make efforts in my classes uh, to create a safe space and a community so that the um, folks taking class start to you know, depend on each other, they become friends, they're bouncing ideas off of each other, they're workshopping ideas together, they're doing some stitch and bitching together. Um, And to me, that's actually one of the things that's most profound, Um, one of the things that's very profound about, about burlesque is that it creates a very strong sense of community, of camaraderie, um, you're all in it together, you know. Like if I'm teaching a six week workshop where we come in and everyone's a new performer, and they come up with stage names, come up with concepts. Um, you know, we start breaking things down, uh, how to come up with an act into steps. And by the end of that six six weeks, they know that they're going to be on stage having made a costume and an act and choreographed everything themselves. There's a lot of camaraderie that comes with that, especially as you're saying, like, oh, you would be um scared to be vulnerable in that way and so uh you're in it together and i think that's one of the things that makes it really exciting um and also supportive in that type
1: of an atmosphere so how how many people are in a class over the now, six weeks
2: yeah so when i do um those are practicum workshops not connected mm-hmm. to an institution necessarily um and i like to keep it um uh no more than a dozen or something like that. I've also taught classes, uh workshops and movement classes at uh something called BurleyCon, which is a yearly convention for um burlesque performers and I've taught classes there and have had, you know, 150-200 students in class. When I teach at New York University, I teach there every summer and I've taught burlesque there I think this summer is my 18th or 19th year because I started teaching when I was four years old.
1: <laughs> of course, of course.
2: Um, yeah, and those classes vary. I usually have in my summer session about ten so a couple of years ago we did uh, I did a really short version of the class and I only had three students and it was really intense so the numbers range but i think like you know 10 to 15 is a good number in a practicum uh, uh, course
1: okay so now when you're teaching and you were saying that your university students don't necessarily know your stage person i'm expecting all that's going to change now
2: well, NYU is the only institution that I taught at that I was forthright about being a performer because I did go to class, and most of them already knew. So, um, so that was that. That is the one place uh, that I was, you know, out to them. And also, that class at NYU, it it is a history and a theory class, but for the final, I've always given them a performance option. So if they wanted to perform instead of write a paper, I would I would help them do that. And last year was the first time um, that I actually uh, made the performance the final and made paper the option. And so one thing that I did differently was that I actually built in Practicums um, uh, into the course, so that that was actually part of it. And for the students at NYU, you know, it's the drama department, so they love it, um, and that's just part of of what they do in their training. And they find a lot of liberation in being able to come up with their own ideas and executing and putting them on stage. And there's something very different about that process than a traditional uh theater um uh a theater role where you go and audition they give you the role you have a costumer that's making the costumes you have a director advising you what to do in burlesque the performer is the director they're the costumer they're the choreographer they're the publicist (laughs) they're the director uh they wear all hats at the same time and there's something really exciting especially for a student at NYU in the drama department, which is a highly prestigious program, very difficult to get into. So they're all top students, they're all phenomenal actors, um, and they're really given this moment to do whatever they want on stage. And I think it's really liberating and exciting for a lot of them.
1: So that, I think, comes into a topic we wanted to talk about, which is agency. Right. Because when you are the designer, the script writer, the director of your own self. Right. So talk about the impact of burlesque and agency and women in general, um, because I know that's something that's important to you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that to me is one of the things that's
2: most exciting about burlesque um, that that. That self-authorship is what I refer to it as, is like coming up with your own stories, coming up with your own narratives, um, coming up with your own, you know, how how you wanna present yourself to the world. That self-authorship is really liberating. Um, And I think that that's something that's connected to early uh, burlesque, and by early burlesque, I'm talking about Thompsonian burlesque um, from the 19th century, uh, uh one one person, one contemporary at that time said, you know, it's really um it's really uh uh shocking to look at these women with their horrible prettiness and that they and that they, they were being critiqued as being aware of their own awareishness. and so this idea of just being like fully who you are um is scary right because so often uh we're we're taught to conform and so that to me is something that's really really um empowering about burlesque is and i've I've seen it over and over and over and over again and i can't quite um i can't quite quantify it i can't say exactly you know uh turn down um self-consciousness three degrees and turn up you know empowerment or agency 10 degrees but i've seen people over and over again just literally be transformed um and and i think uh that that permission to be aware of your own awarenessness is part is a really integral part of, of folks finding their agency and finding their voice.
1: So in my lingo, non-theater lingo, basic lingo, um, for me, it's almost like to be able or to be in your class and be told to come up with this, right? I have to decide what story I want to tell, right? Am I telling the story that I took on when I was little because people said they liked me in that way? Um, do I even accept that story any longer, right? So what would I write if I was rewriting and recasting myself? And it seems to me that because it's in a a class setting, I don't have to take it so serious like this is my only chance to get the story right, right? It's like, "Ah, okay, version one was pretty close. Let's do version two and do it a little different. I just think there would be freedom in that to like, be tell your own storyteller and own it versus saying, "Oh, poor me! I have to be this story," and not even understand why you are that story.
2: Absolutely, I think that's such a great way uh, to look at it, and that whole idea of reinvention. Every act is a, is an opportunity to reinvent yourself. Uh, you know, and I I tell oftentimes students will will come up with a stage name. You know, um, let's say their stage name is. I don't know raggedy annie right or something like that and they're like oh well now i always have to be raggedy ann in all my acts um and now no you know you can you could change your stage name every time you get on stage you could change your persona you're not stuck in one narrative anymore and um and that's one of the things that's really fun about it you know if you tend to do more comical acts if you really want to switch the narrative and do a femme fatale act that's a little bit more serious um, there's there's space for all of that. Uh, and so, um, and that's really, really interesting to me, seeing what people come up with for their very first acts, uh, the story that they're telling on stage, it's really interesting because I'll tell you right now, nobody comes up with their first act. Nobody's acts look the same they are literally each as unique as a fingerprint. And so it's really exciting to bear witness to that and also to have that process along.
1: As are we all unique, right? Which why the whole conforming thing is such a waste of time, right? We aren't the same, we are similar. We share things, we are not identical. So I just think that is liberating. So tell me what's one of the, I don't know, one of the surprises that you encountered from writing this book. One of the surprises from writing it? Oh, man.
2: You know, um, one of the surprises for me, well, this wasn't a surprise, uh, but really getting things in a way that they're, legitimized in stand in like traditional academic texts um was was painful and time consuming there's one footnote one end note in my book that took me i worked on it for a week i worked on it for 40 hours one one footnote one page Um, and that wasn't super surprising to me uh because we all know how how painful painful, um, that part of scholarship can be the really nitty gritty. Um, But one of the things that surprised me was that I actually, um, I got such joy from, from just describing things that I have been knee deep in for, you know, two decades, almost two decades at this point, I really found a lot of joy in describing acts that i love like that's the so each chapter in this book is a very focused case study so i'm looking at a particular performer and i do a close reading of one of their performers uh one of their performances uh and to me i you know someone described them as um they said you have a lot of it's clear you have a lot of love for the people that you're talking about and I think of each chapter as a little love letter to the performer um, because I love I love what I love what they do. And so that was surprising because oftentimes in academic texts, um scholars can get pretty critical. Um that's what we're taught to do in graduate school. We're taught to break things down, we're taught to critique things. Um and I found way more joy in describing what I loved than describing what didn't quite fit or what I thought was wrong.
1: Okay, pause there, drop the mic. If we all spend a little more time describing what we love instead of what we don't like and what kind of rubs us the wrong way, just think how much happier we'd all be. That's my little soapbox for you, but I love that you had that. <laughs> Cause that's the whole thing with, footnoting and all that stuff. I'm going, it's tedious. Not only is it tedious, it takes you away from like the heart. So I know it's necessary. Um, But I love that you think of your chapters as love letters. That's great. Um, Are you going to write another book as one in the offing for you? Yeah, well, I'm actually working on two manuscripts
2: right now. I'm doing a I'm editing a collection of writing and it's called sex on stage. And we're we're intentionally being provocative, um, but the sex uh uh implies, you know, sexuality, the body, but also it's about gender. Um, and that, as I said, is an edited collection that I've been working on with a UK scholar, and her name is Ali Carr. And we're at the proposal stage. So we already have all the contributors we've um, collected their um, submissions and workshopped their pieces with them. So we're really excited about that. And the other uh, book I'm working on right now is actually a memoir. And it's a little bit of an experimental form memoir, but I've been, so I'm working on that too. So I've really been excited and energized by uh, my writing career. So um, one thing that has become a little demystified for me, having now gone through this process of writing a book proposal and going through peer review, um, twice, that's a story for another day. Um, I switched my publishers um, halfway through this project and I'm super happy with Rutgers University Press. Shout out to Kim. And, uh, uh, but I've learned a lot about, I, I, I've i learned a lot, it's sort of demystified writing a book and, and doing it, it's doable. You know what I mean? Like, it just takes a little bit of work, but it's doable. And now that I, I know I can do it, uh, I'm excited to do it more.
1: I love that you're both a teacher, a performer and a communicator, right? In writing and performing and all of that. So if you were to give little doctor Lynn, when she was about eight years old, a tidbit of advice, what would you tell her? Oh,
2: I would tell her um, to not apologize for being bold. Um, And, you know, at the time my role model was was Miss Piggy Um, and I read Miss Piggy's Guide to Life uh, you know at the time and I would have told her keep that copy reread it every year because that is your guide to life um, I love miss piggy and at that when I was a little kid I was a little chunky so I was bossy and you know so people call me miss Piggy, and it'll be like, "Mm, I'm not Miss Piggy, Um, and I wish I would have claimed it. Claim it. Thank you. Oh, you're Miss Piggy? Oh, I thank you. We wish, we could only all wish we were Miss Piggy. Miss Piggy is the best thing ever.
1: Okay, that'll be a takeaway. And I know you have a gift to offer folks of your book, um, or they can get one, a signed copy of you. So how do they do that?
2: Yes, I would absolutely love to send you a personalized um, book plate. So if you want to buy my book, um, I strongly recommend buying it directly from Rutgers University Press, they provide free shipping So you can buy it there, and of course, if you would rather buy it at your your local bookstore, we encourage that too, Um, and of course it's sold everywhere that books are sold, and I also want to mention that we have an audiobook, so if you prefer to listen rather than read, the audiobook is available, and it's narrated by Kate Valentine, aka Miss Astrid, who's a super amazing host and a very important innovator of the neo burlesque scene. So um, you can purchase my book and just shoot me an email and I'm happy to mail you a book plate. Um, you can reach me at my website is linsally.com and my email is drlynnsalley at gmail.com uh, and keep up with me on social and 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 yeah let's KIT keep in touch.
1: I like that. Well, and we'll put the links in the show notes for anybody who's listening and not able to take notes safely at the moment. So don't worry about that. Um, Lynn, it has been so great having you on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I love that you put yourself out there. And um, I felt a little clutch for you when I'm thinking, whoo, that's a brave gal, right? So I like what you brought into my day today by being a guest. So I want to thank you for that. And I wish you all the best. And listeners. Reach out, check it out.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It was my absolute pleasure.
0: You've been listening to the No Labels No Limits podcast with best-selling author, change agent, and strategic vision coach Sarah Box. You can grab the show notes and find out how to work with Sarah at SarahBox.com forward slash No Labels No Limits Podcast. We'd love this podcast to reach as many people as possible. So please remember to rate, leave a five-star review, and share the podcast with someone you think would